Holy and merciful God, at this time we devote our attention, direct our thoughts and our hearts to you. And as we prepare for the lesson which is about to be spoken and the word that is about to be read, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in your sight. And I pray that the meditation of all our hearts now at this time would be acceptable in your sight, that you would clear away all the things that might compete for our attention, the thoughts that may arise that try to lead us astray at this time, and that we will focus on what you have to say through the power and the movement of your spirit here this morning. Your spirit is here among us, and we ask at this time that your spirit would breathe new life into us, invigorate us, ignite us, give us a passion for the words that are about to be read, and that as these words are read, Lord, may they come off the page by the power of your Holy Spirit. May you breathe them deeply into our hearts so that they may transform us from the inside. Bless this time that we have now, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand if you are able for the reading of the word. Our scripture today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, 
to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A lot of times when we think about getting a massage, we think about something that's, that's relaxing or soothing. People go to the spa, a day at the a spa, and they'll have candles sitting around, maybe some incense, some soft music playing, and you'll lay down and somebody will come out there and they'll just give you this, this gentle massage that when you leave, you feel really refreshed, you feel really good. That lasts for, you know, maybe an hour or so. If you have deep underlying stress, that stress, those worries, those anxieties, they come back. But there's a different kind of massage. It's called a deep tissue massage. And if you've ever had one of these, you know that they are pretty painful. Um, They actually get down deep into the muscle and try to find where all that underlying tension lies. And it's not comfortable at all. In fact, it can leave bruises. But the point is that once this is done, that the underlying problems at the root of your stress, at the root of your your struggles, uh, is is resolved more uh, long term. Um, Claire and I were at Sam's the other night, and they had these little massage machines sitting out to demo. and, And and I've had trouble with my shoulders and neck. I've shared that with y'all before, but I sat down with one of those things and I came home with it. And Claire put it on and and she felt that it was getting down deep. It was digging down deep in those shoulders. She took it off and she handed it back. She said, that's, that's all you. She didn't, she didn't need it. She didn't want it. It made her uncomfortable. And I put it on and, and of course it, it was uncomfortable for me too. It left a few bruises up here, but I know that it worked out some knots up here that have been there for, for years and years. That's what the book of Acts does for the church. You see, we can come into the church and we can get a soothing massage and leave feeling really good about things and really relaxed. And there's a time and place for that, certainly. But there is also a time and place to realize that we have deep-seated issues in the church. And I'm not talking about just this church. I'm talking about the church in America and globally. That we have deep-seated issues that need to be worked, and it's going to be very uncomfortable, but in the long run, it's going to help us. That's what this study through the book of Acts, I'm hoping, will do for us, that it will, it will show us where the root of our issues lie, and that in doing that, we can, we can discover what it is that we need to do. Acts is uncomfortable for the church today because we look at the book and we see how the early church was, how it prospered, how it blossomed, how it took off. And the reason it did was because it was driven by the power and the movement of the Holy Spirit. And then we look at the church today and we say, well, why aren't things working like that anymore? What is the problem? And we read it and we see the devotion, the dedication that the the apostles had. And it's no wonder... Because if we really get down to it, so few people in the church today have the same type of dedication or the same type of hunger and thirst for the Holy Spirit that the apostles had. And I'm guilty of that just as much as anyone. But that's why we study the book of Acts, to highlight what it is we need 
and to see where it is that we are falling short. You see, the book of Acts is much like the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is very uncomfortable at first. Gospel means good news. It is the good news of Jesus Christ, the salvation of Jesus Christ that is offered to us. But we don't get there unless we first realize some unnerving truths about ourselves. The gospel is very uncomfortable at first. There was a movie in the 90s called The Matrix. And it's a science fiction film where this guy, Neo, discovers that he was not living in a real world like he had always thought. In fact, he was living as part of a computer program. And that everything he thought was real was, in fact, not real at all. And so Neo, trying to figure out what's going on, he's talking to this guy, Morpheus, who has been freed from the Matrix and is trying to tell Neo how this all works. And there comes a point where Morpheus offers two pills. And he says, you take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. But you take the red pill, you'll stay in Wonderland, and i show you just how deep this rabbit hole goes. This idea of a blue pill and a red pill, that one reveals something that we've never seen before, it's sort of become a, a phenomenon in the culture. You'll hear people talk about the red pill or the blue pill, and you might not know what they're talking about, but it, it alludes to this. In fact, the saying has become so popular that it has its own Wikipedia page. Now, I'm not kidding you. You, you can look it up when you get home. There's, there's a Wikipedia page devoted to the saying red pill or blue pill. In that Wikipedia page, it says the red pill represents knowledge, freedom, and the sometimes painful truth of reality. Knowledge, freedom, and the sometimes painful truth of reality. The blue pill represents falsehood, false security, blissful ignorance of illusion. When Peter preaches this sermon to those in the temple on this day, he is basically telling them, here's the red pill. I am giving you the knowledge of freedom and the painful truth of reality. If you were here last week, you remember that we, we were talking about Peter and John going to the temple and seeing this, this beggar there who was lame by birth, and, and they, they healed him. They met his deeper need. They didn't just give him money that he was asking for. They met the deeper need and they healed him. And the lame man got up walking and leaping and praising God. And so what happens is all the people at the temple see this. And they're like, what is this about? We've got to know more about this. And they're seeing that this beggar is, is clinging on to John and Peter and thanking them and that, it, and that he is healed. And so all these people want to know what is going on, what is happening here, how did you do that? And Peter says, all right, it's time for the red pill. It's time for you to understand that you have lived your life until now in ignorance. Blissful ignorance, maybe, but ignorance nonetheless. And what does Peter say? He says, you had the holy and righteous one among you. And you chose to free the murderer. You had the light of God here among you. And you chose darkness. You had the author of life among you. And you chose 
to kill it. And Peter goes on to say, I understand you acted in ignorance when you denied the Holy One. Peter knew something about that. He denied the Holy One on the night that he was crucified. Peter knew about ignorance. And he was saying, God knows your ignorance too. But the ignorance is not an excuse. And that's why Peter said, I am telling you so that you can know, so that you can have this knowledge, so that the truth can change you. You see, in the Matrix, there was another man named Cypher who had taken the red pill. He had become aware of the reality, and it was too much for him. He said that truth was an unnecessary nightmare. And there's a scene where he's cutting a steak and eating it because he's, he's making this deal where he's going to eventually take the blue pill and go back to his former state. He's cutting the steak and he eats it and he says, Mmm, ignorance is bliss. And his point is, I know that this steak is just part of a computer program. I'm not really eating it. It doesn't really taste this way, but I would rather be ignorant and think that than to live within the truth, which makes me uncomfortable. And he says what we've heard so many times. It's a common saying, ignorance is bliss. But ignorance is not bliss. In fact, the definition of the word bliss means perfect happiness. Can you truly have perfect happiness if you are ignorant to the truth? to the reality, to the knowledge of God, to the knowledge of your own sin, your own desperate state. Ignorance cannot be bliss because the very definition of ignorance means you don't understand what's going on. And if you can't understand what's going on, then you can't understand perfect happiness. Ignorance is not bliss. It is, in fact, the cause of a lot of suffering. I took a course when I was at, at Candler. We, we were required to take a world religions course, uh, a different religion other than Christianity, just to understand it. And the course that I took was Buddhism. And Buddhists believe that ignorance is the cause of all suffering. All right? I don't believe it's the cause of all suffering, but I think that it is the cause of a lot of suffering. And Buddhists believe that the, the cure for ignorance is enlightenment and that the end of suffering will only occur when everyone is enlightened. Well, that's all well and good to believe that enlightenment is the, the cure for ignorance, but then what happens when you attain that enlightenment? What are you going to do with it? It's not enough just to be enlightened. It's not enough just to have the knowledge of the truth. And that's what Peter is saying here. He's saying, I'm laying down the truth. I'm telling you what you did in ignorance, what you couldn't see your whole life. You were choosing darkness when you thought you were choosing light. And now I'm telling you, I'm giving you this knowledge, but you have to do something with it. You have to repent. Enlightenment in itself is not enough. It has to cause an inward change. It has to cause a turning around. There were things that I did in my youth that I thought were okay. I did not see anything wrong with them. Some of them I even thought were the right thing to do or the good thing to do. And then when I looked back later, as I got older, as I matured, I looked back and I thought, gosh, I can't believe I ever did that. And you start seeing how certain decisions you made out of ignorance actually affected other people. 
And it could have harmed or hurt other people. Maybe it did. I did it out of foolishness, out of ignorance, because I didn't know better. But I can still see, in hindsight, the repercussions, the negative consequences. So is it enough for me to look back and just say, well, I was ignorant then, I didn't know what I was doing? No. I have to make that right somehow. Now, I can't go back in time and fix all the, the poor decisions that I made, but what I can do is confess to God what I did wrong, and if anybody was hurt or anybody was harmed by the decisions I made, I can apologize for that. Enlightenment is not enough. Understanding that we were once ignorant is not enough. We have to somehow confess that. We have to somehow repent and make that right. But I want to circle back around to what Peter said when he said there was a holy and righteous one and a murderer. You chose the murderer. And he's, he's really giving the, the almost kind of like the red and the blue pill. There's this, this complete opposite. You chose one thing out of ignorance, not understanding what the real thing was, the holy and the righteous thing. And then he says, instead, that was a great injustice, but instead of God correcting that injustice by, by punishing all the people that put Jesus to death, he could have done that. God could have said, to right this wrong, I'm going to punish everyone who did this wrong. But instead what God did was he raised the Holy One back to life. Because that's what kind of God he is. He restores. He brings things back to life. And Peter is saying that even though you did this in ignorance, if you confess and if you repent, you're confessing to a God who brings things back to life, a God who renews things and restores things, the God who raised Jesus, the same God who raised this lame man here in front of you, and the same God who can raise you out of your ignorance and out of your sin. You see, the gospel is uncomfortable at first. Look at how Peter ends this passage, the very last verse. He says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. In other words, if you turn from the evil that has been revealed to you, if you turn from the darkness that has been revealed that you live in, God will bless you. He seeks to bless you. Now what I find fascinating about all of this is Peter's sermon, Peter's evangelism, his message, his proclamation here was done on the heels of what we talked about last week. Remember last week we talked about meeting the real need in others. Being the hands and the feet of Christ, not just writing a check and handing it off. Not just dropping some money in, in someone's cup, but seeing what their real need is and trying to reach out to that in the name of Jesus. That's what Peter and John did, the reason this man was healed. And when he was healed, everybody saw it, and then everybody wanted to take that red pill. Everybody wanted to see what was going on. Everybody wanted this knowledge. This is what happens when the church begins to meet the needs of others. All of a sudden, our proclamation, our gospel message, is ready to be received by those who see the work of God through us. 
They have to see our actions, and then they hear our words. And then when they hear our words, we offer them hope, life, forgiveness, and restoration, but only on the heels of repentance. This sermon from Peter does three things. First of all, it reminds us who have found salvation in Christ that we do have life. And we have it because we respond to God day in and day out with repentance. The second thing that the sermon does is that it offers a clear choice for those who have not repented. Those who are still living in ignorance. It offers them an invitation to take the red pill, if you will, and understand that they've been in darkness. And it's an invitation to step into the light of Jesus Christ. And the third thing that Peter's sermon here does is it shows the church how to follow up our acts of mercy with the word of proclamation. We seek to meet the real need in others in the name of Jesus, and by that same power, we then use that moment as a way to bear witness, to offer that red pill to someone else so that God willing, they may be free from the ignorance and from the sin that has bound them. We've all lived in ignorance. Maybe we're living in ignorance about certain things even right now. But ignorance is not bliss. Ask God today to reveal to you the ways in which you might be choosing darkness over light. The way you might be choosing death over life. And then repent. For he longs to restore you and he longs to bless you. Let us pray. Lord, forgive us for all the times that we have chosen ignorance over knowledge and wisdom of you. Forgive us for all the times that we have been content to choose the lesser thing, the darker thing, sometimes even the evil thing, over the light and the life that you send us through your Son. If there are any ways, Lord, in which we are living in ignorance right now, please reveal that to us. We ask that you open our eyes, that you open our hearts and show us the ways in which we can walk and live in the knowledge of truth, confessing to you all our past misdeeds, repenting, turning them over to you so that we can be forgiven and healed. We pray all these things in the holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please turn in your hymnals to page 12. As today is Communion Sunday. I'd like to take the opportunity to remind you that this table that is set here before us, it is not my table. It is not the church's table. It is God's table. We are all welcome at it, regardless of uh, denomination, regardless of church membership, because, as it says here, Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, 
We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen.